0: Do you fear the Lord? How would you answer that question? How do you know if your answer is true? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I'm not asking if you merely respect him. Fearing the Lord is more than just looking up to him and acknowledging that he exists. A person who fears the Lord realizes that whenever we consider the, the greatness and the grandeur of who God is, we are, in the words of Jerry Bridges, still an immeasurable distance from who God really is. We constrain our facu- faculties to the uttermost And God is infinitely beyond our comprehension. When I ask you if you fear the Lord, I'm not asking you if he terrifies you the way a slave might be terrified by his master who is cruel and harsh. The fear of the Lord is deeper and sweeter and more tender and life-transforming than that. It's more like a child who has a father who is eminently respectable, who is highly esteemed, who is kind and good in all his ways. And this child longs with all her heart to please her father because of how good he is. The fear of the Lord, it's it's a mingling together of trembling and pleasure and joy and love and awe when we consider the terribleness of his wrath and the awesomeness of his power and the amazing kindness of his mercy and grace and love to sinners who deserve the very opposite. The fear of the Lord has been described as a heart of total openness that says, Father, how can I actively fully please you right now? So do you? Do you fear the Lord? Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 this morning, and the key question of these two chapters is found in chapter 6, verse 20. Please look at it as I read. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That is a question that anyone who fears the Lord will resonate with. You feel a deep, visceral response in your heart if you fear the Lord when you read that question. In fact, this is one of the diagnostics to Determine whether or not you are a person who fears the Lord. If you hear that question and you simply yawn and shrug it off and say, Well, surely there's not going to be anything in this sermon that relates this morning to me, it, it, it probably is an indication that you are, like the mass of humanity, one who has no fear of God before your eyes. Or if you listen to that question and you think, well, that's a good question for the Old Testament, but we live now in the age of mercy and grace, so it no longer relates to us. You too need to come to grips with what it means to fear the Lord because this, the Bible says, is where wisdom begins, and it doesn't start without the fear of the Lord. You cannot avoid asking this question, and you must not ignore it. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. And our text probingly answers that question in three ways. First of all, no rival God can stand before the Lord, this holy God. Remember where we left off last week. The Israelites have been defeated in battle by the Philistines, The ark of God has been captured, which represented God's presence and covenant relationship and rule over his people, and the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. In Hebrew, the word for glory means heavy, weighty. You are experiencing God's glory when his presence, his majesty, his character is weighing heavily upon your life. And under the corrupt leadership of Eli and his sons, the people of Israel have been treating God lightly. They've been despising the Lord. So now the weight of God's glory has departed from Israel, and the Philistines are going to get a taste of what it's like to have the glory of the Holy One of Israel bearing down on them. And this is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God... They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is the Philistines' victory tour. The Ark of Israel's God now sits like a trophy in the house of the Philistines' highest god, And every verb in these first two verses makes Israel's God the passive object of the Philistines' triumph, as if to say, na, 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 our God is greater than your God. But something happens in the middle of the night. Look at verse three. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. (laughs) You can imagine the Israelites, generations later, telling this story to their children around a campfire at night, relishing every detail. How ironic that Dagon is lying flat on his face on the ground before the Lord's ark, the Lord who is to be feared by all the gods of the nations. Well, the people of Ashdod don't know what happened Was the janitor careless when he was sweeping around in the temple at night? Did he knock their God to the ground? Whatever happened, someone's got to take care of their fallen God. Don't you just love that last line in verse 3? So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) Putting their God in his place. If you were texting the news to your friend, this is where you'd write, LOL. (laughs) Or you'd insert that teethy, smiley emoji with tears running down its cheeks. What kind of God is this that he needs to be picked up and put back in his place? Not once, but twice. Look at verse 4. When they rose early on the next morning, behold... Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And not all the Philistines' horses or all the Philistines' men are going to be able to put this Humpty Dumpty back together again. Their God has no head, he cannot think or speak. He has no hands, he cannot act, he's just a decapitated, limbless torso. And to this day, the narrator writes in verse 5, the priests and the people of Ashdod refuse to even step on the threshold of Dagon's temple because they don't want to mess around with the power That ripped off its hands and its head and left him flat on his belly before the ark of Yahweh. You see the point? Yahweh triumphs even on enemy turf. And listen, friends, there is no rival God that can stand before the God of the Bible. Before this Lord, this holy God. The God of the Bible reigns above all earthly powers. Before him all other powers and gods must fall prostrate. Just like Hannah prophesied in her prayer back in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. She said, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And this incomparable, holy, eternal, living God who created everything has come down into our world and he has become one with us in the incarnation of God the Son. And he speaks and we have heard his voice. He walked on the dust of our streets and we have seen his footprints. He has looked us into the eyes and shown us the Father's heart and love. And we have looked upon him and touched him as he lived among us until one dark Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem, when the powers of this age thought that they had defeated the king of glory. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and hell was howling with glee the devil thought he had cut off the head and the hands of the King of Kings and left the Son of God lying impotent in his grave. But then came the morning that sealed the promise. His buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence the roaring lion declared, "The grave has no claim on me." He rose. No rival could triumph over the Lord of life. That's why the Apostle John ends his first letter with these penetrating words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What does that mean? Well, whatever claims to have the loyalty that belongs to God alone, that, in the words of Alec is an idol. Or as Martin Luther put it, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. And Tim Keller fleshes it out a little more. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Listen, no idol, no rival God can sustain you or satisfy you, because every rival God is as empty and impotent as Dagon. So let's respond in the words of the hymn writer who said, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol may be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. The downfall of Dagon. It's just the beginning of the Philistines' experience of the weight of God's glory in their midst. It gets worse for the Philistines as they find out not only that no rival God can stand before the Lord, this holy God, but also no rival of God's people can stand before the Lord, this holy God. The key phrase is at the beginning of verse 6 in chapter 5 where we read this. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. It's a play on words because the word for glory means heavy, and the word for heavy is the word for glory. These Philistines, whose God now lies handless in the dirt, are now experiencing the heavy hand of Israel's God bearing down on them in judgment. In verses 6 through 8, we see the people of Ashdod filled with terror, Because they've become afflicted with tumors. It seems like some type of plague is spreading among the people. And they make no mistake as to the source of it. Look at verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God so they gather their leaders together and they ask, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they all agreed, let's send it to Gath. It's kind of like the people of St. Charles saying, we'll put it on a canoe and send it downriver to Geneva. Let them deal with it. And they all agreed. But then the same thing happens in Gath. We read in chapter 5, verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great Panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So what did they do? Well, send it down to Batavia or Ekron. We read in verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and here's why. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And we learn at the beginning of chapter 6 that this continued for seven months as the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines and they were experiencing this hard humbling under the heavy hand of the Lord. So they call their priests and their diviners together in chapter 6 and they decide, we're going to send the ark of the God of Israel back to Israel. And they sent guilt offerings resembling tumors and mice made of gold, suggesting some type of bubonic plague was going on here. And this was all motivated by what, by what they knew about how God had previously delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. They say, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to To the God of Israel, show that he's the weighty one. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Do you see what the Philistines are seeing here? They're seeing that no rival of God's people is going to be able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. And they're remembering how God had delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt, and they're seeing that God's about to do the same thing again. And they're saying, let's not make the mistake that Pharaoh and the Egyptians made. Now just to make sure all these tumors and plagues were not a coincidence, they put the ark on a new cart carried by two cows who had never been yoked together before And who had recently given birth to calves. Now, what does a nice mother cow want to do for her calf? She wants to take care of it, give it drink, and feed it. So, every instinct in these cows would have been to go back toward their calves. But against all the odds, we read in the narrative that instead these cows made their way straight in the opposite direction, all the way to Israel, lowing as they went. They didn't turn from the right or the left until they reached the border with Israel and brought the ark home. Clearly, it was the hand of Yahweh that was heavy upon the Philistines. He demonstrates that through the way he guides these cows. So who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Well, no rival God can, and no rival of God's people can either. But this is a question not only for an unbelieving world, you see. This is a question for God's people as well. In fact, it is not the Philistines who ask this question in the narrative. It is the people of Israel who ask this question. Because in this passage, it is not only the Philistines who experience a hard humbling under the mighty hand of God. It's also God's people who experience that hard humbling. And this leads us to the third answer of that question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And the answer we find at the end of this story is that no casual worshiper will be able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. You can imagine the shouts of joy that fill the people of Israel. Back in verse 13, the people of Beth Shemesh, when they looked up and they saw the ark of God returning to them, it was an event akin to the exodus from Egypt. It's not a coincidence that the narrator tells us in verse 14 that it came, this ark came to the field of a man named Joshua, another Joshua, and stopped there near a large rock. The people are overjoyed. God's glorious presence has returned. So they chop up the cart and they make a burnt offering before the Lord. It looks on the surface of things like they're worshiping. But it's evident from the text that a crucial element is missing from their worship. They are not worshiping in the fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God. In this worship, does that ever happen to you? Do you ever speak of God or deal with God in a way that empties him of his weightiness, his significance? One writer describes how he caught himself doing this in church. I was singing a song and Mouthing words which extolled the greatness of God while thinking about whether or not our family would eat at the new Mexican restaurant or go with the quick and cheap McDonald's run. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. A fajita sure sounds good. Worship his holy name. But can our budget fit in eating out? Sing like never before. Ugh. Not McDonald's again. Oh, my soul. Maybe if we ordered off the lunch menu. I'll worship your holy name. Yep. Mexican it is. And he says, when I'm singing about the greatness of God's mercy, and I'm thinking about fajitas, I'm using his name as just a flippant thing. And that is, is dangerous. It's dangerous for us to get this comfortable with God because it causes us to think we've got a grasp on him. A heart that can think of fajitas while singing about God isn't actually singing about God. And yet I'll check off my Worshiped God Today box, and seasons upon seasons of this will dull our faith. Our text is careful to point out that the people of Beth Shemesh weren't just careless in their worship. They were seriously transgressing God's holy law in a way that reveals how impoverished they were of the fear of the Lord. First, in verse 14, they offer cows as a sacrifice, but the law of God called for bulls. Second, in verse 15, the Levites took the ark and the golden figures and set them upon a great stone. And what they're doing here is parading the ark instead of covering it, which is what Aaron and his sons were commanded to do in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5. And the third transgression, which was the most serious, is that they looked inside the ark in verse 19. And whether it was curiosity, Or the grandiosity of victory, this was a grave transgression. Instead of of trembling and bowing down in the presence of this holy God, they show a casual disregard for what God had clearly commanded in Numbers 4, verse 20, where it says this, But they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. And it is this absence of godly fear that brings the hand of the Lord down heavy upon his own people. The people pay a steep price for their lack of reverence. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? They felt doomed. They actually want to send God away from them. This happened in in the life of Jesus in the the region of the Gerasenes when Jesus drove out demons from a man who had been possessed and the demons went into a herd of pigs and drowned in the lake. And, And what did the residents of that region start doing? They pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. They were afraid of his power. They did not comprehend his mercy. But there is a way. There is a way to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, and not at a distance. And the secret is in the covering of the ark of the Lord. God had a reason why that ark needed to remain covered and why no unholy eyes could ever gaze inside that ark, not even for a moment. God intended the ark to remain covered because the lid that covered that ark was a sacred enclosure called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat did not only function as a physical covering. The mercy seat, its whole purpose was to cover. Its whole purpose was to provide a shield or a covering for the sins of the people. And every year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest was called to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle. And there he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sins. So the mercy seat is the place where sin was transferred and forgiveness was received. This was where a sinful people could be reconciled to their holy God so that they could stand in his presence and not flee from him in terror. And one writer describes it like this. As long as the blood was there on the mercy seat, God saw only the blood and accepted the people. So do you see why it was such a serious transgression for the men of Beth Shemesh to gaze into the ark of God's holy presence uncovered without the blood of the mercy seat? The men of Beth Shemesh were killed because they showed a casual disregard for the only way God can allow a sinner to draw near into his holy presence. By uncovering the ark and looking into it with their unholy eyes, they were acting like they could approach a holy God on their own merits. And that's like touching a live, high-voltage wire while you're standing in a pool of water. It's deadly. But we can stand in the presence of a holy God. We can draw near. And the reason we can draw near is because the mercy seat has become a person. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, verse 24, God presented Jesus as the propitiation by his blood. Or as the CSB translates it, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. And when we come to God through faith in Jesus, we experience God as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So do you realize what God is telling us? Jesus has become the mercy seat. Jesus is the one who brings us into the Holy of Holies so that we can enter into a living, loving, lasting union with the God of the Covenant. We don't have to cower at a distance. We can draw near to the holy God in all the glory of his majesty, and we can stand in his presence. Therefore, the book of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We have boldness. We have confidence. We can draw near. But let's never mistake that boldness and that confidence with a casualness or with a complacency, or with a type of worship that takes God lightly. For in that very same chapter of the book of Hebrews, we read this warning. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it is a delightful thing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And to trust in his son Jesus, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, but to be clothed in his righteousness, faultless to stand before God's throne. If you believe in that, if you trust in Jesus, if you esteem him as your Savior, would you stand now and would you receive these words of blessing as I lead us in prayer?